0: Hi, I'm David Crow, and this is episode 248 of The Infectious Myth. Email me at david.crowe at That's Crow with an E. Join the discussion and like us at facebook.com theinfectiousmyth. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Infectious Myth. Listen Tuesdays at 2 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time on prn.fm, or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or other programs. You can listen to any of the last five episodes over the phone by dialing the U.S. number 701-719-0990 and following the instructions. PRN.FM has voicemail. Call 862-800-6805. And as well as a message or question for the show, leave your name and indicate it's for the infectious myth. If you dial either of these numbers, long-distance charges may apply. I don't know that you're a listener until I hear from you. Send me a message letting me know how you stay in touch with the show and what you like about it. If you include your mailing address, I'll send you a little thank you gift. One of the bookmarks I make by hand using my own photographs. I do really love to hear from my listeners. Don't be shy. I'm spending a lot of time on the show these days, especially with writing articles on the coronavirus and doing all the research that's necessary. So consider donating. You can make a one-time donation to the expenses of the show via PayPal using the email david.crow at or you can commit to monthly donations at patreon.com or liberapay.com, where we are also Infectious Smith, one word. We appreci- appreciate all our listeners, but if you want the show to continue to grow and improve, consider paying a small amount for the information you're gleaning, but the support you get for some non-mainstream ideas, the challenges you get to others. If you'd like me to speak at a meeting of an organization you're a member of on any topic on which you think I have an interesting and worthwhile opinion, I'd be happy to discuss this with you. I appreciate you commenting and suggesting guests. I appreciate your financial support as well. Thanks for listening and for recommending this show to your friends. I've had a tremendous amount of feedback on my article and podcasts on the coronavirus, and unfortunately, I don't have time to read all of it today, but I will get to it. Thank you to everyone who's considering the information I'm bringing forward. That's what I really want, and please feel free to send links to my coronavirus podcasts and my article slash book coronaviruspanicpdf with a capital C and a capital P on coronavirus panic to anyone who might be interested. Briefly, some of the uh, comments are wonderful article, wow, thank you so much for your work, well-researched article, excellent breakdown of the coronavirus. You are one of the few sane voices, and a criticism. You read too fast for us foreigners. I'll try to work on that. I'm sad to report that Tony Bark, who was interviewed in episode 27 in September of 2014 on the CDC vaccine scandal, has died of cancer. Rest in peace, Tony. I'd like to thank Eric for the donation uh, via PayPal. Eric wrote with his gift, thanks for the myth busting. Jen Smith is returning to the show. He is a transgender identifying male with degrees in history and political science born in Oliver, British Columbia, Canada. He's coming back to inform us about a case in his province of British Columbia in which a hospital informed a father that they don't require parental consent for testosterone injections. And it's been getting worse and worse um, over time. Jen Smith and another journalist, at least one other, are deeply involved in the case. In fact, they're on the firing line of the judge. Um, Jen blogs at Transanity, uh, pardon me, transanityca.wordpress.com. Welcome back to the show, Jen.
1: Uh, it's good to be back on the show. Actually, it's easier for people to, to get to my uh, website by going to jensmith.ca.
0: Oh, okay. Jan Smith, and it's Jan with two Ns, right?
1: Yes, and one okay. more, Jan Smith.
0: Yeah. I'll put that in the show notes. It's nice about something written as slightly more complicated spellings can be handled right. more easily. Yeah. Um, so let's start, before we get into the case, let's talk about the publication bans involving, um, you know, the, the father, yourself. Like, what is it that we're not allowed to, well, I don't know if I'm covered because I'm not in British Columbia, but... What is it that you and the father and a couple other people are not allowed to talk about?
1: Um, Okay, so yeah, there is some sort of, um, uh, like some people are unclear about some details of this case. Um, uh, For those who don't know, um, this case uh, basically came to my attention back in, in 2018. And I was the first person to uh talk to the father and interview the father and uh I wrote about this for the post millennial nationally in December of twenty eighteen and at that time, there were no no uh court orders uh in place at all, all right. uh, The first court orders that were ordered in regard to this case. Um, and I should say there is statute law in BC. So there are laws uh, regarding family cases and minors that are automatic. So you can't talk about um, minors uh, in, the, uh, in the press.
0: Um, I mean, you can talk about them, but you can't use their name. Right? Yeah, you can't.
1: You can't name them. That's that, That's right. what I. What I mean. So there is that statute law in place that covers minors. Um, however, when you're talking about adults, that requires specific orders. Now, the first uh, order uh, in this um, case uh, was in February, February of 2019. So that was basically three months after the. Uh, uh, case had come to my attention and that order. I, I bas- think
0: I interviewed you in January of 2019. So just before this order came down, I guess.
1: Yeah, probably. I don't remember when I did that interview with you, but uh, if you say so, I'll, I'll assume that's okay. Correct. okay. Um, but um, so yeah, February, late February of 2019, an order was put in place uh, basically prohibiting naming the father in the case uh, in, in any publication uh, in April of uh, April 15th of 2019, a second order was put in place prohibiting uh, naming any of the healthcare professionals who were involved in the case. So there was basically a, a blanket uh, prohibition on naming any of these uh, individuals in connection with the case. Okay, so this is where there's a misconception. I can talk about uh, the case, anybody can talk about the case, but you're not allowed to. Uh, Name names within the case, right? Um, And also if you're if you're uh, if you want to talk about the doctors, so one of the doctors who we're going to uh, uh, christen uh, Dr. Chan, okay If you Mm -hmm. want to talk about Dr. Chan You can talk about Dr. Chan and all the stuff that Dr. Chan is doing and criticize Dr. Chan all you like You're just not allowed to connect Dr. Chan to this case. You can't connect the two items, right? Yes, Uh, and um that applies to all of the healthcare uh, professionals so um the, the the exception here is that the father you can't talk about the father um at all as far as i'm uh, i'm aware in, in terms of uh, anything to do with gender uh, transition but so with healthcare professionals it's just connecting them to this case
0: so so basically um <clears throat> my understanding is that this involves uh, a father divorced, I mean, these cases almost always are involve a divorce, because otherwise the parents presumably would likely be on the same side. <clears throat> um, who had a biological daughter who decided that she was really a boy. The father objected, the mother kind of went along. It doesn't sound, from what I know, that she was enthusiastic one way or the other, but she kind of let it go. Mm -hmm. And the hospital got involved and said, well, we, you know, even though you're the father and you have equal um, uh, responsibility or equal rights regarding your daughter's healthcare um, decisions, we're going to take that away from you. And there's some laws in BC that I guess allow them to do that in in extreme cases.
1: Well, actually no extreme cases uh, is not uh, really accurate. So the, uh, The situation in British Columbia, actually it's quite similar in most provinces in in Canada, and most people are probably unaware of this, but in BC there is uh, an act called the Infants Act. The Infants Act in BC uh, was passed uh, back in the the 1990s by an NDP government at that time. Um, Actually it was in place before that, but they they made some major revisions to it in the 90s. And um, the Infants Act uh, essentially was designed initially uh, to enable under like minors, if they wanted to get, uh, for instance, vaccinations and their parents were opposed to it. So they implemented this act saying that if a doctor did an assessment of a minor and came to the conclusion that they were aware of the potential health risks and aware of, you know, the consequences or um, basically the the, the uh, um, pluses and minuses of any particular procedure as long as they Mm. were aware that they were able under law to give them status as what they called mature minors right and they were able to consent to having these procedures done against parental wishes now initially that was designed to apply to things like um Uh, like say vaccinations um, treatments for STDs and even highly controversial but abortions right stuff like this
0: yeah Uh, I think in the past has also been cases involving blood transfusions because there's religions that uh, refuse blood transfusions and and sometimes there's dissension within the family about whether it should be allowed or not.
1: Yes, and uh, this has been tested in court under the, under that uh, provision about the blood tr- uh, transfusions too. There was a case, mm. I believe, with Jehovah Witnesses. Um, All right. But um, so yeah, there is this this law in place that um, uh, enables basically any um, non. I believe the the wording is non life threatening conditions. So any condition. Uh, that a minor might seek and this is where it's because uh, that wasn't really uh clear how uh, when the legislation was put in place the legislation doesn't even set an age limit so it doesn't say you know you have to be over 12 or something it just says uh well they would call them infants but infants basically is anybody under the age of uh 19 uh, mm-hmm. so um it's uh it doesn't, it doesn't set a lower limit. It's just up to the doctor in question.
0: And, um, and this is different than, I mean, there are cases where a doctor will go against the wishes of the parents and the child, say in the case of blood transfusions, and the doctors will force uh, something on a minor child. But but this is this is different legislation because it's basically saying we're gonna elevate the child essentially to an adult, mm-hmm. right? And if you're an adult, you can make your own decisions. And of course, the doctors do. This implies that the doctors agree, because the doctors wouldn't do it if they didn't. Right. Um, so basically, the doctors plus a minor, minor child can override both parents if they want to.
1: Right. Okay. So this this is the the thing. Now, it should be stated that that. Um... The the reason that I got involved in this case in the first place was, first of all, because of my activism. I'm a fairly well-known activist on this topic in British Columbia, so my name's sort of out there. Um, But also, about six months before this case came out, I had uh, stumbled across a document published by the uh, Vancouver Coastal Health Authority. It was a peer-reviewed document that was uh, designed to uh, guide physicians uh, in the Lower Mainland in terms of how to treat uh, transgender youth and uh, you know what are the best uh, policies and procedures in that regard uh, within that uh, document I was um, surprised to see a reference to the Infants Act and that these uh, doctors were recommending that uh, the Infants Act should be used uh, to treat transgender use and that sex reassignment should fall under the category uh, of you know procedures that a, a youth can get against the, the wishes of parents. Now, when I uh, saw this in the, in the doc, in that document, I was quite alarmed. And so, uh I announced this uh, and uh, um, provided screenshots of, of the document on my s- social media platforms and said to everybody look this doesn't look very good it looks like they're gonna trample parental rights and um, sort of uh, allow minors to get to uh, sex reassignment against parental wishes now at that time the other side of this debate came at me and said oh you're just a fear monger and they're just saying that for a worst-case scenario and they would never do uh, something like that right and, and, and at that time I didn't have have any evidence to sort of uh, come back at them with the, to refute their? Uh, and from what
0: date was this approximately?
1: That was in in I believe that was in June or, or July of 2018. Mm-hmm. Um, so because I didn't have any evidence like I knew there was this case in Prince George there was a case in Prince George where a father was uh, forced to facilitate his uh, child's uh, gender transition uh, using Lupron, I believe it was in that case. But I was unaware at that time that the uh, Infants Act was involved in that. I didn't get access to the court documents on, uh, on that until later. So I didn't have any evidence. Um, Fast forward ahead to December of uh, of 2018 and I was contacted by Angelina Ireland who at that time was uh, seeking the candidacy for the Conservative Party of Canada and uh, she knew me so she uh, had heard about this uh, case and she said well I heard about this father who's being forced to um, you know facilitate his daughter's uh, gender transition you should really check this out and when I heard the general details of it um, having you know talked about the dangers of this six months before and having warned people that there were bad things coming down the pipe here, uh, I immediately recognized that, okay, this is a big case. I need to get on this immediately. So I scrambled. I went. I interviewed the father. I got all the details. I took a look at the letter that had been issued by the uh, children's hospital to him. And uh, I subsequently uh, published this in the um, Post Millennial. But the the letter uh, that uh, that the Ho- Children's Hospital sent to him at that time basically said that um, because he uh, he opposed the uh, the testosterone injections is what they wanted to give her. Basically, on and um, just to give a little background, there there were t- uh, three steps along along the way. So the child mm-hmm. basically was first. Uh, consulted by counselors at the school. And from uh, the counselors at the school, she um, was referred uh, via the mother to a psychologist, a Dr. Chan that we're talking about, who is uh, a, leading, a leading gender psychologist in British Columbia. So she okay. went to this Dr. Chan. She saw him, oh, I don't know, a half dozen times. And then he determined that she was uh, suitable for um, testosterone uh, treatments to fully change gender right so he referred
0: well fully it might be a slight exaggeration to gain some secondary male characteristics well what they would call fully right <laughs> yes. yeah
1: you can never change sex period um, yes. no you can you can severely alter your body though so mm-hmm. it, he he referred her to the BC children's hospital and um, the father actually was at that stage kind of uh, reluctantly going along with the whole thing. He's like, mm-hmm. okay, we'll see what happens. We'll see what the doctors say. And he was doing his own research at that time. So when she was referred to the BC Children's Hospital, he thought, "Well, okay, this is just the most recent step. They're going to do a bunch of uh, assessments and you know, they won't do anything extreme until they've seen her at least a few times, right? Um, but, uh, on the very first visit to the BC children's hospital, within two hours of being at the children's hospital, he received a, a phone call from his ex-wife saying, um, they want to start giving her testosterone shots right now. And the father was like, Whoa, Hey, wait a second. This is way too fast. No way. Don't, uh, don't do that. Bring her back home. So that's what happened. And she mm-hmm. was, she was brought back home. And then, um, after that, he sort of uh, solidified his position and said, listen, this is an extreme procedure that's going to totally alter her body and ster- possibly sterilize her for the rest of her life. I'm not going to consent to this. Like, just forget it. This is something she should do as an adult.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, uh, the uh, uh, social and how work- old was she at the time? When she first uh, went to the, the BC Children's Hospital, she was 13. 13. 13, like 13, yeah. And by the time that, uh, because eventually they would order these procedures to go ahead, when the procedures finally started, she was 14. Um, but um, shortly after the father made it clear that he wasn't going to consent, um, he was contacted by. Uh, was the social workers at the uh, BC Children's Hospital uh, who tried to you know communicate with him and get him to to understand that in their opinion this was the best thing to do for for his daughter, um, but he he wouldn't have any part of that. So mm-hmm. the next step was was this letter that was sent to, from the. Um, I guess the legal department of the BC Children's Hospital and the, the the main endocrinologist there who basically said that look your daughter has been assessed by the hospital we've determined that she is fully aware of uh, you know all of the pros and cons of this procedure and is capable of making uh, the decision to begin testosterone injections therefore this decision is not your decision to make. Furthermore, it is not your wife's decision to make. The decision rests solely with the child, and um, we're going to begin these testosterone uh, injections whether you like it or not. There's
0: So they carved out the mother as well? Nothing you can do about it. They, and they carved um, out the mother. Yeah. Well,
1: well, they, 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 made it clear in the letter. So the mother at that stage was sort of reluctantly agreeing to allow the testosterone injections, but the letter said that even though she's, she's agreeing, it wouldn't matter what she said.
0: Just in case she changes her mind. We just want to make it clear that your mind doesn't matter. Whatever yeah, but, you think. That's irrelevant.
1: right. Yeah. The decisions of the parents are completely irrelevant. So that was, uh, basically when I, uh, That that letter had had just come to him when when I first uh, uh, connected with him. So I got uh, uh, photocopies of the letter and uh, screenshots of that were published in the the post-millennial. I also at that same time uh, published uh, it on my blog. And um, uh, here's an interesting thing. Currently, I am prohibited from referring to my own work done at that time. The court has said that I cannot tell you the name of the article that I published on my blog. I cannot refer you to that article. I cannot publish another article referring you to that article because that article names the doctors in question, right? So they, they gave me some, uh, the lawyers for the other side, uh, we'll get into that in a second, uh, all the lawyers involved in this.
0: So, so they, they, they can't take down that article, but they can okay. make sure you don't refer to it anymore.
1: This, this was, was the debate. So initially when I was contacted, um by the legal team Uh, they were intending to have that article taken down By the time I showed up in court, the uh, lawyers approached me outside the courtroom and said, listen, we've we've decided we're not going to try to get that article taken down. And I think that's because I had immediately gone online and said, look, and they're retroactively flushing things down the memory hole here. This is Orwellian. So I think they, because I know they were, at that point, they were watching everything I was doing on social media, right? So um, I think they changed their minds at that point and said, okay, what we're going to do is we're, we're we're uh, going to let that article continue to exist there, but uh, we're, we're going to prohibit you from referring to it or linking
0: to it. Um, right. So. Well, I, I'm sure my listeners couldn't possibly figure out where it is, so... you don't need to worry
1: yeah it's too difficult in any case so i can't refer you to that but in in, in that article at that time i published all of the names and uh, the article that was published with post-millennial which actually i don't think is on their website anymore they may have pulled it down for their own reasons i don't know but um uh all of the names went out there when it was published in post-millennial, it got uh, tens of thousands of views. It was shared 8,000 times widely circulated at that time. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, the names and the stuff were, were out there and uh, people who follow this closely, uh, most people who follow this closely know the names of, of the doctors and a lot, a lot of people know the name of the, uh, of the father in question too. So um, what happened uh most recently, was um, the father being frustrated with the the way things were going and the fact that he had been sort of disempowered as a parent.
0: And well, can can let's can we just take a little sure. time to say exactly how he was disempowered? Because you you kind of referred to him having things beyond not being able to refer to his his daughter by name. Like, what are the restrictions, uh, or, or, you know, what does the court said you cannot do in terms of talking about the case okay.
1: to him? Yeah, well, there, there, there are some good things to sort of point out there in terms of the Orwellian nature. Of, mm-hmm. of, of it's of very Rusty. Orwellian,
0: which is why I, I want you to go through it carefully because it's sure. pretty stunning.
1: Sure, okay, well, the main things, uh, uh, we'll start with the least controversial first. The main things is that uh, uh, he's not to identify himself in terms of this case uh, in public at all. Um, initially there was a, a, a ban on him trying to convince his daughter to, um, consider other options. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that was eventually lifted and he's allowed to have conversations with his daughter. Um, but, um, he was prohibited from talking with the public or identifying himself. He was not allowed to, um, you know do media interviews or anything like that um, He was also and this is where it really gets Orwellian he was ordered by the first judge on the case, which was Justice Bowden uh, to um, only refer to his daughter using male uh, identifiers uh, male, male pronouns uh, to refer to her as a as a as a son, not as a daughter, and to make no uh, references to her. Uh, using her biological sex whatsoever. So he was forced, basically, to, um, you know, refer to her as something that she wasn't. And that's what So
0: if a judge says, from now on, two plus two equals five, for you, not for other people, but for you, two plus two equals five, then if you're teaching math to your kids, you have to tell them that two plus two equals five well they don't believe it
1: this was this was the one of the issues that 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 I brought up when I was dragged into court um, because um, uh, when they dragged me into court for uh potentially by well actually I did violate the the, the court uh, order uh, Which sli- for you? slightly <laughs> but once they dragged me into court um, uh, I was Basically, I, I said to the judge that because the judge was um, sort of looking at all of these uh, violations because the, the legal team on the other side brought in not only my violations and the violations of Laura Lynn Tyler Thompson, who was also um, um, dragged into court for an interview that she did with the father, but there were all of these other violations. Like they, they said that uh, it was getting out of control. So many people were violating the, the court orders and he's looking at all of these violations. And I said, the thing here is. Um, your lordship, is that um, why do you think this is going on? Okay, Why do you think you, that you have so many, uh, in many cases, you've got Christians, people who are otherwise law-abiding and otherwise have a great respect for uh, law and order in the courts. Why do you think so many of these people are violating the law? The reason is because the court has lost um, favor with the public. The public no longer believes in the integrity of the court. So uh, I said that what has happened with the court, and I would suggest that the Bowdoin ruling should be set aside in its entirety because it set a bad tone. Because the court in this case, by forcing a citizen to speak lies, has untethered itself from truth and at the same time untethered itself from justice. Become nothing more than the arbitrary um, enforcer of what is essentially a Orwellian totalitarian state. And until the uh, court addresses this issue of forcing citizens to speak lies, you've like the, the court has fallen into disrepute, and you're going to lose um, you know the uh, respect of the community at large. So this needs to be addressed. Because as you say- And if what can, was the
0: judge's um, reaction to that?
1: Well, that's sort of an interesting thing. So um, th- as you kind of pointed out there, though, if you can force a citizen to say, uh, a, uh, you know, a, a girl is a boy or a man is a woman, that's a precedent that is a dangerous precedent so what's next they're going to force people to say war is peace so if we go bomb some country somewhere and i say well that's an act of war uh the the courts are going to come to me and say no that's an act of peace don't you right. dare say otherwise right it's a precedent it's a dangerous precedent now when i pointed all of this out and i said that to the to the judge too i used the orwell stuff i said what next war is peace you know the strength uh, slavery is freedom and the judge just sort of uh looked at me and kind of made some notes and he never really quite addressed that all the way through. like I went to to court four times on this issue, including two full days in court. And uh, at no point did the judge ever address that uh, issue.
0: So are are you just involved because you talked about this? Um, You you know, that's how you got dragged into this. You you interviewed, you wrote about it, and therefore the judge thinks you violated some order, and therefore they can drag you into court and, and beat you up about it.
1: Well, I'll tell you what my theory is. I mean, I don't know the thinking processes of the other side here. But um, again, basically what happened was because the father felt so disempowered and that he wasn't allowed to talk to anybody about this, he wanted to talk to the world and try to rally support behind his cause. And he also wanted to alert the community of you know the dangers of what was happening. But he was under court order not to do that. So at some point he became frustrated had his lack of power. And he said, okay, I'm gonna start doing interviews anyway. So he started doing that. He did an interview with, uh, I believe the Federalist in the United States. And then he did an interview with uh, Frank Vaughn, a video uh, interview, and Frank Vaughn, I think is Ontario. And then he did an interview with uh, Laura Lynn Tyler Thompson, uh, who's in in BC, who's a TV uh, evangelist or former TV evangelist. And um, when I saw that he was doing all of these interviews, Uh, Because I knew him, right? And I had been the first one to talk about him. And because I am an activist in BC on this issue, I said, okay, well, if he's going to be doing interviews, he should do an interview with me. (laughs) So I contacted him and said, so since you're doing interviews, why don't you do an interview with me? Because uh, I am sort of the preeminent activist in BC trying to prevent child transitioning. So I think it's important if you're talking to people that you should talk to me because I think I can thresh this subject out uh, more fully than anybody. Um, so he agreed to do that. So I, uh, announced that on my, 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 Facebook, I said, okay, I'm going to be doing an interview with the father and I named him, um, uh, because his name was out there already. It was floating on mm-hmm. all over social media. So I said, I'm going to be doing an interview with him on, uh, I forget what night it was. It was like a Thursday night or something. And, um, within, uh, probably within 12 hours of my making that announcement, I started getting um, uh, email, what they call email services. I didn't even know before this case that uh, you could be served by email now uh, under special orders from the court. Uh, So the first service that I got from one lawyer, I was like, I'm uh, being served by email. Is that even legal? Do it like so. Uh, there was some question about where this, you know, the legitimacy of the service I was getting. But then over the over the next few hours, I start getting more and more and more. I start getting all of these services from all these different lawyers saying that I was in violation of the court order, and they were seeking something called short leave. Basically, what that is is they put aside the normal processes and time periods uh, for to bring something into court, and they um, they get it to expedited. So what happened was that uh, I essentially ended up in court within 12 hours of getting my first service. So it was a very quick thing. So I think what happened... And
0: did you do the interview?
1: Well, that's the interesting thing. So the the court, uh, I was ordered to appear in in court the day that the interview was scheduled. So the interview was scheduled to take place at, um, I believe it was 7 p.m. that day. And uh, it was like, uh, it was almost as if they were worried about uh, me doing an interview with the father because of my status as a prominent activist in BC on this subject. Um, I think they were very concerned about, uh, the father and I getting together on this in such a public way. Right. So they, they intervened and dragged us into court on short leave the day of the interview. And, um, the, uh, the judge, the Supreme court judge, uh, at that time, Justice Tamman, um, uh, basically ordered that the interview not proceed literally two hours before the interview was scheduled to take place.
0: Um, Well, it's nice to know that the justice system can work fast when uh, there's something so critically important.
1: Yes. Um, Yeah, it was very sort of overwhelming for me that it happened yeah, so quickly. And then the, the other sort of one of the amusing things is like I was not represented by a lawyer. I went in there myself to defend myself. And then uh, so there's me. And then at the first date, there was the father and there was Laurel and Tyler Thompson. None of us had lawyers. And at the, the other side of the table was this team of lawyers and legal assistants. Mm-hmm, like this, this, mm-hmm. this mob on the other side, right? So... Uh, That was kind of uh, interesting, and it it expanded in time too, as we got into—I forget—it was either the second uh, court date or the third court date. The Attorney General uh, of BC injected himself into the discussion and announced, uh, uh, filed an application as an intervener, and. uh, announced to the judge that they were concerned that what was happening in this case with the violations of the court orders constituted a threat to the rule of law in BC. And thus they had an interest in this case. And uh, the judge initially said that he didn't know whether he was going to grant them that intervener status. Um, and, um, but he said that they were welcome to to stay uh, in the courtroom, I guess. And so the attorney general stayed there until our last um, Court appearance uh, when the um, judge basically referred the whole issue to the attorney general's office for review.
0: This uh, brings up another issue: the asymmetry in a lot of these cases. Uh, I mean, the the firepower on the other side is overwhelming, and and that means a lot in the judicial system. I mean, it's not like in every case where there's a hundred lawyers on one side and no lawyers on the other side that that they're going to win, but it sure, um, you know, puts a pretty heavy weight on the scale in favor of the people who can afford endless uh, lawyers and consultants and whatever else is needed to ensure that uh, the, the opposition gets crushed.
1: Yes, and that was my experience. So this was a very sort of eye-opening experience for me because I haven't been in court in like 40 years. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, When I was a troubled youth was the last time I was in court. Um, So this was a real sort of uh, experience for me. The the, the thing is, is that... again, they've got like a team, like high priced lawyers with unlimited resources, all kinds of assistance and stuff. So for them, it's a bit of a snap, they can slap all this stuff together in a relative hurry. Uh, They came in with binders, huge thick binders of screenshots of everything we were doing on the internet and stuff, right. So they've got all of these resources. For me, um, it was, uh, it was overwhelming, because I I didn't realize uh, initially, like I decided that I was going to fight this to a certain Uh, extent and sort of oppose their motions. And um, what I should say is that uh, after the second um, day in court, they issued, the judge issued a ruling saying that he was basically reaffirming the publication bans and was clarifying them to make them even, uh, you know, so there was no misconceptions about what it meant because there was a a debate as to whether or not the publication bans applied to chatter on social media. So he Mm -hmm. clarified that and said, no, no discussion on social media whatsoever. But at the time that they issued this, this clarification, they also stated in there that um, there would be no uh, oral publication. And that affected me specifically because I do public talks, right? And Mm -hmm. very shortly after I met the father, I, I, Uh, incorporated this story into my public talks to kind of connect all the dots about what's going on with transgender ideology in British Columbia. So when I saw that they had put in the the orally thing, I said, okay, uh, uh, your lordship, I've got a problem with this because this is going to affect my ability to do what I'm doing as a a public policy advocate. And uh, you kind of earlier described me as a journalist. The journalist was a thing that I kind of did on the side. The primary thing I am in BC is a a, uh, political... Po- uh, public policy activist. That's what I do. I'm a, a political actor. I'm trying to affect uh, policy change in British Columbia. Mm-hmm. I'm calling I'm calling for provincial and national inquiries into what's going on. So I told the, the judge that uh, this is going to significantly affect me. And uh, furthermore, you're not really uh, addressing the timeline here and the fact that I had published all of this and I came to all of this information before any court orders were in place. And the existing court orders talk about the proceedings of what is going on in this court case. Well, everything I know about this court case didn't come from the proceedings, right? (laughs) came from my knowledge and interactions with the father uh, ahead of time. So what the judge said at that time was that, um, okay, I tell you what, I'm going to temporarily put this order in place with the understanding that we are going to reconvene in court on march 9th and at that day we're going to reserve the whole day and i'm going to give you an opportunity at that time to present your case as to why you think the publication bans on specifically or particularly the doctors should be lifted in any other um, applications that you might have so it was all moved over to march 9th now that's which has when, come and gone which has come and gone um, now the like at that to that point I hadn't done any paperwork. I just went into the the court and uh uh, sort of responded to the, the applications against me, but I didn't really have to do much of anything. Um, once we got to, to, to going to the March 9th date, okay, now I need to do applications and stuff. And this is where the paperwork started. So I was unaware that there's like a ton of paperwork that you got to do. You got to fill out this big, long application, which has all these sections and you got to know sort of uh, legal precedents and, and all of this stuff. So there was a huge sort of uh, learning curve that I had to the, to to deal with initially in dealing with this application. If you had a hundred
0: lawyers on your side, it would all be done for you.
1: Exactly. So, but the thing is that I don't have a lawyer. Plus I also work 40 hours a week, right? And Mm -hmm. this is all a very tight time window that this took place in in about a week there. So I had to learn how to do the application. I had to drive from Abbotsford to downtown Vancouver, which is a long drive in rush hour traffic, right? Back and forth, uh, filing papers, um, uh, I had to go to the, uh, the courthouse there and get some help from the, the legal society and stuff, and uh, I had to swear affidavits, and the affidavits for me being transgender was even more difficult because like two-thirds of the transgender population, the name that I use socially, which is Jen, is not my legal name. Uh, I, never mm-hmm. changed, I never changed my uh, identification, and most transgender people don't, um, but that initially created a problem because uh, when I was um, served and came into the court, I was served under the name Jen Smith, but that's not my legal name, but now I need to do paperwork where I'm filing an affidavit that you have to swear at the courthouse, right?
0: And, I mean, could you have argued back then that you were served under the wrong name?
1: I could have, but like I, like I, there would be no point because I figured like Jen Smith, that is me, like right? a horse by mm. any other name, right? It's still me, so I didn't want to contest that. Plus, that's the name I prefer to use. So, but when when it came to the process of uh, of swearing an affidavit, it was a problem because I was listed on this um, sealed case. So the 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 Um, The text of the uh, proceedings there is sealed under court order, right? And I'm listed in there as as Jen Smith. But now I've been given an opportunity to do an application and I have to swear the affidavit, but you can only swear an affidavit using your, uh, 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 your, your ID. Your legal name, yeah your legal name and stuff. So when I went in to, to swear this affidavit, this caused a problem and everybody at the office there, suddenly there's a big conference meeting about how to deal with this problem. Right. And whether or mm. not I could even file the affidavit, uh, eventually it was, it was worked out and it went ahead. Um, but, um, just to sort of give you an idea of all the problems I was going through. Plus you got to get all of these, um, anything that you're submitting that I was submitting had to be done because by that time there were like, uh, I think seven different, uh, lawyers involved right so i had to make copies for everybody so the, the paperwork in terms of photocopying and all of this stuff all had to be done mm-hmm. too and all within this this one week period furthermore i had to in that same time construct what i thought would be a convincing argument to bring to the court which on its own is would, would have been enough to use up all my time right mm-hmm, yeah. so so over this this period of a week there i uh, ended up getting an average of uh, about you know, maybe about three hours sleep a night. There were a couple of nights where I only got two hours sleep. I was so you know, desperately trying to get everything together to do my presentation to the court. Um, but that gives you an idea of, of what the average person, someone like me, is going to encounter when they are besieged by you know, a high-powered legal team on an issue like this. Um, uh, most people just wouldn't be able to deal with that at all. Right. I was barely able to deal with it, uh, you know, giving every moment of my time. But I did manage to pull it off and I came in and I gave a, what I thought was a, a very convincing uh, presentation. The courtroom, by the way, on March 9th was packed, was packed full of people.
0: Oh, well, that's good.
1: Yeah, there were a lot of people there. And so I brought my A game because I am like I'm a public talker, like a public mm. speaker. Right. So this is what I do. This is my strength. Right. So I put together what I thought was a powerful presentation to argue why I should be excluded from the publication ban or why the publication ban, particularly as it refers to the healthcare professionals, should be lifted completely.
0: Yeah. I want to ask you about why the doctors are protected in this way.
1: Right. So I gave this this big presentation. And um, what happened uh, after that was, it actually extended another day. So I thought it was gonna, we're gonna spend all day March 9th on this, and then we'd be done and it would all be over. But we went all day March 9th and then it got carried over and we spent all day March 10th on this too. Um, so by the time we got to done uh, uh, March 10th, the judge um, basically said that he listened to my presentation carefully and my arguments and he thought that my arguments had merit, um, however, he was not prepared to lift the uh, publication bans on the doctors, but what he was prepared to do, he kind of threw me a crumb. He said what he was prepared to do was he was going to let me talk about the doctors and their connection to this case, but only in my public talks and only in that, you know, these small rooms, right? Nothing outside of that room. Furthermore, anybody who attended my talk had to be informed about the publication bans and prohibited it from recording. And that if anybody recorded uh, the content of my talks and posted it to the internet, I would be responsible for that. So I would have to police that and be responsible for that um, legally. Um, so it was almost like setting me up for failure because I've had this happen before, where opponents of mine. Um, I don't let people record my public talks because I like to control the dissemination of my yeah, information. Yeah. Right. So, I, right. Yeah. yeah, I have I have uh, put out copyright statements on my public talks uh, up to this point. And even though I do that, people have violated my copyright statements. Oh, record- in, in this
0: day and age, people take photos when they're told not to take photos. People record things when they're I mean, I've been guilty of doing that. Right. Right. Um, well, but in my case.
1: Yeah, I know, I understand people will be in some cases recording me and stuff, even though I'm telling them not to. Uh, The the point where people kind of cross the line is when they publish it. to the mm -hmm. the internet right because now you're actually really violating my copyright um and and, but even though I make all of these statements and even though I pursued some of the people who've done this I can't like I couldn't stop it like there's people who put recordings of my talks out there and I they're still online and I can't do anything about it actually the the one that I had the biggest trouble with actually just recently pulled it down because uh she was anticipating that I was going to be criminally charged and she didn't want my defamatory information on the web as that was her argument but anyway that, that just sort of sort of shows you that i can't control what people are doing mm. in my talk so they were setting me up for failure but the thing is is that okay so he throws me this crumb and i thought okay well at least it's something right but immediately after throwing me this crumb in his order uh lawyers for the provincial health authority and uh dr chan stood up and said okay we have a motion here to stay the order so they had come in fully prepared. They had all of their documents filed. They had a, a binder full of authorities to cite, and uh, they were asking for the order to be stayed, and the, the judge granted that order. So they gave me something for a moment and snatched it away, and they said they were taking it to the court of appeal to appeal the decision.
0: So that's... so Okay, so now you got me totally confused. By staying the order, the order is no longer in effect.
1: The order has been written. Okay, so the judge has written the order, right. but it is not in force so it's just there pending a court of appeal
0: hearing so so now you can talk about these things but at the court of appeal they may hit you with something I, I, even no, more no, no
1: no, i cannot i cannot uh talk about these things the, pre- the pre-existing orders are still in place the new order which gave me the authority to talk about these things.
0: Oh, okay. Oh, that's that's the order they stayed. Okay. That's my confusion.
1: Yeah, no, they stayed that order, the order that gave me the ability to talk. So that one, okay. They're going
0: to appeal that slight little crumb.
1: Right. So that's okay. going to the court of appeal. I got quite upset about that actually after the fact, because uh, this, the, this whole ordeal, like two weeks of being sleep deprived and nearly killing myself to to have to, to fight this uh, team of, of lawyers and stuff. Um, but by the time I was done at the end of uh, Tuesday on March 10th, I was emotionally and physically spent. And right. at that point I went on, uh, I did an interview with uh, um, youtube broadcast called Freedom free for all you know in that interview i said you know i'm not going to keep doing this okay i'm not going to let these uh, legal vultures drain the life out of me okay i'm just going to go out there and and i'm going to speak the truth okay and if they want to drag me into court in chains they can do that that's the only way i'm going back into court is in handcuffs Mm and i'm just going to keep on speaking the truth so i was very upset and i sort of said i'm done but uh uh, you know, now that I'm a little bit rested and stuff. I've had all kinds of people coming to me saying, listen, you need to pursue this at the court of appeal. You can't just let it go.
0: Yeah. Um, um so we're, 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 we've been talking a long time and I, I want to know what were the arguments for protecting the identity of the doctors and can you talk about what kind of involvement the doctors have in transgender issues outside of this case?
1: Okay. Yeah, this is all very important. So it links into what I do as a public activist. So in many ways, I'm a whistleblower, right? So what I do is I connect dots, and I show the relationships between different people. And I show that there's essentially a systemic thing going on with this whole transgender thing. And in order to do that effectively, I have to name names and connect dots. Mm -hmm. So the publication ban on the uh, doctors was justified on two grounds. The first one was uh, to call it specious would be uh, generous. Um, basically, they said that by identifying the healthcare professionals involved in this case, you might somehow uh, identify the the teenager in question. Like, yeah, they might have is- like
0: two hundred patients, and and that helps you figure out which one of it is. Well, this one, the the Dr.
1: Chan that we're talking about here has uh, a thousand patients. So, Mm. um, you know, the the odds of that happening are slim to none. Um, So that that one is like whatever. Right. The the real uh, one that they have, the real justification is that when this uh, story was uh, talked about and published in the Federalist in the uh, United States. the In the comments underneath the article, there were all these people who made all kinds of nasty comments and stuff. And you can imagine some some guy in Alabama in his underwear reading the story and going on to the comment section and going, right. "Yeah,
0: these, these these dumb doctors. Somebody ought to string these doctors up." You know, something like yeah, that. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna drive up there with my AR-15 and blow them away.
1: <laughs> right. Exactly. So, so stuff the kind of stuff that you see on the internet. The kind of stuff that yeah. I get like as as a as a public. Uh, uh, activist myself i've gotten all kinds of threats of physical violence against yeah. me and death threats and stuff like that but it's real easy people get real brave on the internet when they feel, yeah. feel there's no consequences yeah. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. so
1: they they clip these um, online threats and stuff and said well you see these doctors are under imminent uh, threat they're in serious danger so we need to protect them from uh, you know these crazy people in alabama who are going to get in their pickup truck and come down and you know do a number on them or whatever um so that was the, the the justification there it was to protect the safety of these doctors um the thing is is that uh, the dr chan that we're talking about here is a very public figure okay so uh, mm-hmm. he is out there all the time doing interviews television interviews he writes books he um you know is constantly uh, talking about uh, uh public policies and stuff so he's not shy for from a uh, public policy or for from um, publicity. Um, it's only when something that he does or advocates has terrible consequences, right? And destroys a family that suddenly he doesn't want any publicity. Right, and this is another interesting thing. So, you talk about how these doctors are involved. So, the two primary doctors that I focused on in this case are both public policy activists, they've both written papers, and mm-hmm. both attended conferences, and they've both made suggestions in terms of policy. So, the document that I talked about, that I where I first identified the infants act and the power to do sexual assignment on minors. Uh, That was uh, done by the Vancouver Coastal Health Authority but uh, Dr. Chan was part of that uh, document. He helped, uh, he reviewed the document and he was uh, an advisor for the document. So he is involved uh, at the policy level in British Columbia. He also worked with uh, the government for a period uh, and uh, now he's put in the policies that are actually feeding patients to him that he's making money off of. Right. Not
0: yeah, and only- he, I think somebody said that he was heavily involved with foster children.
1: Okay. Well, this is, this is another thing. So, um, this is where I really got, like, I've always been sort of concerned about the effect of, um, You know, this whole transgender thing is having on particularly psychologically vulnerable kids, uh, kids with autism and these types of things who are identifying as transgender at startlingly high rates, right? So I was always sort of concerned about that. But when Dr. Chan came to my attention, he did a a talk in... February, I believe it was of 2019, and he revealed at that time that of his uh, 1,000 patients in uh, British Columbia, half of them were from the Ministry of Child and Family Development.
0: So he's he's sucking money out of the government because presumably all their their costs for counseling or whatever are covered exactly by exactly. the government.
1: Yeah. So, but the the thing is, is that that is a like we don't know the demographics of like who are like who are these children? Are they are they all foster children? Are they all, you know, are some coming from other departments of the child and families uh, development? We don't know. If we were to, to presume that they're all. Uh, foster kids or kids otherwise uh, under the care of the government that represents 7.7 percent of all children in the care of the government in British Columbia 7.7 percent right compared to um, it's one half of one percent of kids in the regular population who identify as transgender one half of one percent 7.7 percent of all kids in the government's care if these numbers are correct, and if they're, they're the sort of break down that way, would be in the care of one doctor, just one doctor. And being myself, I was a foster child, I went through six different homes, mm-hmm. right? And I know what it is to be a, a wounded, you know, psychologically traumatized child looking for a new identity, right? So when I learned I, that he...
0: I mean, at the best, you, you, kind, you have feel, feelings of abandonment. Um, as a foster child, right? Like it's it's very hard, even if you've got the best foster parents in the world, you still f- have this feeling, my parents abandoned me. They didn't yes. love me, right? Like you, you're never, you, you're always gonna be vulnerable.
1: Yes, uh, enormous sense of rejection and uh, an, an enormous sense of, you know, being out of place in the world, right? Yes. Just, just naturally. Um, in my case, I was also viciously bullied in school. Uh, of- uh,
0: yeah, I mean, I mean, that happens to children who aren't foster, parents but uh, foster children but it's it's worse you may be in a foster home where you've got other children who are not your siblings who are going to bully you worse than if you were yeah well and, it's, uh, it's-
1: it's a combination. So when you get a combination of being rejected by, or the perception, internal perception yourself of being rejected mm-hmm. by your family or rejected by the world, plus you're getting bullied at school. So you're being rejected again, all this rejection, uh, you know, kind of do a real psychological number on you. And that's when I sort of, uh, you know, I was very young. I started experimenting with transgender identity at that time too, out of right. this sense of rejection. Right. So when I learned that this Dr. Chan had so many kids in his care that were, um, know, probably foster kids, I became even more alarmed and it became a very personal, emotional issue for me uh, that I'm pursuing, uh, you know, <laughs> right. with, with, with aggression.
0: Um, we're running out of time. I would just like to give you an opportunity to uh, complete any thoughts that are incomplete, bring up something really important that we didn't get to before we, um before we end this discussion.
1: Right. So the other, the other thing, that, the, the final thing that we should note is that with this Dr. Chan, for instance, he actually writes books. And these books are part of the, uh, have become part of the Soji 123 curriculum in British Columbia. So he's actually putting materials into the school system that are affecting the minds of these young kids. So he's involved at every level. And I sort of, uh, what I uh, try to do is I try to connect all these dots. And this case with the father and his daughter shows all of the problems and all of the you know potential bad consequences of all these policies and all the different players out there and uh, it shows for instance that the the the, the girl in question began identifying as transgender after seeing a film in school that was part of the Soji 123 program. And I'm of course opposed to Soji 123 because I believe it's brainwashing kids. And so this case really brings it all together for me. And this is why I've argued to the court saying, I need to be able to connect all of these dots and discuss everything because this is my uh, worst case scenario. And it's the only case of its kind that I have. And if you take it away from me, you're disempowering me as a public activist.
0: Well, in a few years, there's gonna be great courtroom drama. Uh, created about this and um, everybody's going to emphasize with the abused children of course sadly by the time we get to the point where you know opinion has has become sane again a public opinion has sort of got on side with sanity um god knows how many children are going to have uh you know start try to start changing sex in many cases reject it after they've permanently altered themselves chemically or with mastectomies or with removing their with hysterectomies, removing their ovaries, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, children will, you know, get to their 20s and go, you know, now I would like to have a child and I can't.
1: Yeah. Yeah, there um, are permanent, permanent consequences of sterilization. It should be noted that the surgeries in most cases can't take place until 18, but uh, that's still very young.
0: Yeah, and I, I think there's a big argument that um, if you get children on this road, you get them on the hormones, um, they very rarely change their mind until it's too late. But yeah, well, if they go to a psychologist um, and there's, you know, they're told nothing's going to happen until you're an adult, if you want hormones, you have to wait, then generally by that time they're starting to question whether they need to change their sex or it's, whether it's... maybe they're gay or something like
1: that. It's social transition is the is the big thing, actually, that, that makes the biggest difference. So if you've got kids who are identifying as, we'll say, gender dysphoric and identifying as the opposite gender, if you allow them to socially transition and sort of facilitate these inclinations, somewhere between 65 and 90 uh, percent of these kids will go on to state, transgender and identifies transgender into adulthood. Whereas if you intervene at that point where they're uh, identifying as the opposite gender and and don't facilitate that and don't let them socially transition, um, uh, the vast majority will not go on to be transgender. So it all has to do with whether or not you affirm their identity.
0: Yes. Well, thank you so much for joining me again uh, today, Jan and uh, Good luck with all the court proceedings, and um, I'm, I'm hopeful that sanity will eventually prevail. Yeah, we all are, and uh, thanks for having me. Okay, it was, it was great. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you for listening to episode 248 of The Infectious Myth. If you have a comment, a question, or suggestion for a future guest, please email me at, at David.crow at theinfectiousmyth.com, like us at facebook.com slash theinfectiousmyth, Follow us on Twitter and Instagram, at InfectiousMyth. Commit to monthly donations of any amount to InfectiousMyth, one word, on Patreon.com or LiberaPay.com. Until next week, thank you and goodbye.